Chapter 40 of Astoria, or Anecdotes of an Enterprise Beyond the Rocky Mountains by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Natives in the neighborhood of Astoria, their persons and characteristics, causes of deformity, their dress, their contempt of beards, ornaments, armor and weapons, mode of flattening the head, extent of the custom, religious belief, the two great spirits of the air and of the fire, priests or medicine men, the rival idols, polygamy a cause of greatness, petty warfare, music, dancing, gambling, thieving a virtue, keen traitors, intrusive habits, abhorrence of drunkenness, anecdote of Comcomly. A brief mention has already been made of the tribes or hordes existing about the lower part of the Columbia at the time of the settlement. A few more particulars concerning them may be acceptable. The four tribes nearest to Astoria, and with whom the traders had most intercourse, were, as has heretofore been observed, the Chinooks, the Clatsops, the Wakayakums, and the Kathlamets. The Chinooks reside chiefly along the banks of a river of the same name, running parallel to the sea coast, through a low country studded with stagnant pools, and emptying itself into Baker's Bay, a few miles from Cape Disappointment. This was the tribe over which Comcomly, the one-eyed chieftain, held sway. It boasted two hundred and fourteen fighting men. Their chief subsistence was on fish, with an occasional regale of the flesh of elk and deer, and of wildfowl from the neighboring ponds. The Clatsops resided on both sides of Point Adams. They were the mere relics of a tribe which had been nearly swept off by the smallpox, and did not number more than 180 fighting men. The Wakayakums, or Wakaikums, inhabited the north side of the Columbia and numbered sixty-six warriors. They and the Chinooks were originally the same, but a dispute arising about two generations previous to the time of the settlement between the ruling chief and his brother Wakayakum, the latter seceded, and with his adherents formed the present horde, which continues to go by his name. In this way new tribes or clans are formed, and lurking causes of hostility engendered. The Kathlamets lived opposite to the lower village of the Wakayakums and numbered ninety-four warriors. These four tribes, or rather clans, have every appearance of springing from the same origin, resembling each other in person, dress, language, and manners. They are rather a diminutive race, generally below five feet five inches, with crooked legs and thick ankles, a deformity caused by their passing so much of their time sitting or squatting upon the calves of their legs and their heels in the bottom of their canoes, a favorite position which they retain even when on shore. The women increase the deformity by wearing tight bandages around the ankles, which prevent the circulation of the blood and cause a swelling of the muscles of the leg. Neither sex can boast of personal beauty. Their faces are round, with small but animated eyes. Their noses are broad and flat at top, and fleshy at the end, with large nostrils. They have wide mouths, thick lips, and short, irregular, and dirty teeth. Indeed, good teeth are seldom to be seen among the tribes west of the Rocky Mountains, who live simply on fish. In the early stages of their intercourse with white men, these savages were but scantily clad. In summer time the men went entirely naked. 
in the winter and in bad weather the men wore a small robe reaching to the middle of the thigh made of the skins of animals or of the wool of the mountain sheep occasionally they wore a kind of mantle of matting to keep off the rain but having thus protected the back and shoulders they left the rest of the body naked the women wore similar robes though shorter not reaching below the waist besides which they had a kind of petticoat or fringe reaching from the waist to the knee formed of the fibres of cedar bark broken into strands or a tissue of silk grass twisted and knotted at the ends this was the usual dress of the women in summer should the weather be inclement they added a vest of skins similar to the robe the men carefully eradicated every vestige of a beard considering it a great deformity they looked with disgust at the whiskers and well-furnished chins of the white men and in derision called them long beards both sexes on the other hand cherished the hair of the head which with them is generally black and rather coarse they allowed it to grow to a great length and were very proud and careful of it sometimes wearing it plaited sometimes wound around the head in fanciful tresses no greater affront could be offered to them than to cut off their treasured locks they had conical hats with narrow rims neatly woven of bear grass or of the fibres of cedar bark interwoven with designs of various shapes and colours sometimes merely squares and triangles at other times rude representations of canoes with men fishing and harpooning these hats were nearly waterproof and extremely durable the favourite ornaments of the men were collars of bears claws the proud trophies of hunting exploits while the women and children wore similar decorations of elks tusks an intercourse with the white traders however soon effected a change in the toilets of both sexes they became fond of arraying themselves in any article of civilized dress which they could procure and often made a most grotesque appearance they adapted many articles of finery also to their own previous tastes both sexes were fond of adorning themselves with bracelets of iron brass or copper they were delighted also with blue and white beads particularly the former and wore broad tight bands of them around the waist and ankles large rolls of them round the neck and pendants of them in the ears the men especially who in savage life carry a passion for personal decoration further than the females did not think their gala equipments complete unless they had a jewel of hyaqua or wampum dangling at the nose thus arrayed their hair besmeared with fish oil and their bodies bedaubed with red clay they considered themselves irresistible when on warlike expeditions they painted their faces and bodies in the most hideous and grotesque manner according to the universal practice of american savages their arms were bows and arrows spears and war-clubs some wore a corslet of pieces of hard wood laced together with bear grass so as to form a light coat of mail pliant to the body and a kind of cask of cedar bark leather and bear grass sufficient to protect the head from an arrow or war club a more complete article of defensive armor was a buff jerkin or shirt of great thickness made of doublings of elk skin and reaching to the feet holes being left for the head and arms this was perfectly arrow-proof add to which it was often endowed with charmed virtues 
by the spells and mystic ceremonials of the medicine-man or conjurer of the peculiar custom prevalent among these people of flattening the head we have already spoken it is one of those instances of human caprice like the crippling of the feet of females in china which are quite incomprehensible this custom prevails principally among the tribes on the sea-coast and about the lower parts of the rivers how far it extends along the coast we are not able to ascertain some of the tribes both north and south of the columbia practice it but they all speak the chinook language and probably originated from the same stock as far as we can learn the remoter tribes which speak an entirely different language do not flatten the head this absurd custom declines also in receding from the shores of the pacific few traces of it are to be found among the tribes of the rocky mountains and after crossing the mountains it disappears altogether those indians therefore about the headwaters of the columbia and in the solitary mountain regions who are often called flatheads must not be supposed to be characterized by this deformity it is an appellation often given by the hunters east of the mountain chain to all western indians excepting the snakes the religious belief of these people was extremely limited and confined or rather in all probability their explanations were but little understood by their visitors they had an idea of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit the creator of all things they represent him as assuming various shapes at pleasure but generally that of an immense bird he usually inhabits the sun but occasionally wings his way through the aerial regions and sees all that is doing upon earth should anything displease him he vents his wrath in terrific storms and tempests the lightning being the flashes of his eyes and the thunder the clapping of his wings to propitiate his favor they offer to him annual sacrifices of salmon and venison the first fruits of their fishing and hunting besides this aerial spirit they believe in an inferior one who inhabits the fire and of whom they are in perpetual dread as though he possesses equally the power of good and evil the evil is apt to predominate they endeavor therefore to keep him in good humor by frequent offerings he is supposed also to have great influence with the winged spirit their sovereign protector and benefactor they implore him therefore to act as their interpreter and procure them all desirable things such as success in fishing and hunting abundance of game fleet horses obedient wives and male children these indians have likewise their priests or conjurers or medicine men who pretend to be in the confidence of the deities and the expounders and enforcers of their will each of these medicine men has his idols carved in wood representing the spirits of the air and of the fire under some rude and grotesque form of a horse a bear a beaver or other quadruped or that of bird or fish these idols are hung round with amulets and votive offerings such as beaver's teeth and bear's and eagle's claws when any chief personage is on his deathbed or dangerously ill the medicine men are sent for each brings with him his idols with which he retires into a canoe to hold a consultation as doctors are prone to disagree so these medicine men have now and then a violent altercation as to the malady of the patient or the treatment of it 
to settle this they beat their idols soundly against each other whichever first loses a tooth or a claw is considered as confuted and his votary retires from the field polygamy is not only allowed but considered honorable and the greater number of wives a man can maintain the more important is he in the eyes of the tribe the first wife however takes rank of all the others and is considered mistress of the house still the domestic establishment is liable to jealousies and cabals and the lord and master has much difficulty in maintaining harmony in his jangling household in the manuscript from which we draw many of these particulars it is stated that he who exceeds his neighbors in the number of his wives male children and slaves is elected chief of the village a title to office which we do not recollect ever before to have met with feuds are frequent among these tribes but are not very deadly they have occasionally pitched battles fought on appointed days and at specific places which are generally the banks of a rivulet the adverse parties post themselves on the opposite sides of the stream and at such distances that the battles often last a long while before any blood is shed the number of killed and wounded seldom exceed half a dozen should the damage be equal on each side the war is considered as honorably concluded should one party lose more than the other it is entitled to a compensation in slaves or other property otherwise hostilities are liable to be renewed at a future day they are also given to predatory inroads into the territories of their enemies and sometimes of their friendly neighbors should they fall upon a band of inferior force or upon a village weakly defended they act with the ferocity of true poltroons slaying all the men and carrying off the women and children as slaves as to the property it is packed upon horses which they bring with them for the purpose they are mean and paltry as warriors and altogether inferior in heroic qualities to the savages of the buffalo plains on the east side of the mountains a great portion of their time is passed in revelry music dancing and gambling their music scarcely deserves the name the instruments being of the rudest kind their singing is harsh and discordant the songs are chiefly extempore relating to passing circumstances the persons present or any trifling object that strikes the attention of the singer they have several kinds of dances some of them lively and pleasing the women are rarely permitted to dance with the men but form groups apart dancing to the same instrument and song they have a great passion for play and a variety of games to such a pitch of excitement are they sometimes roused that they gamble away everything they possess even to their wives and children they are notorious thieves also and proud of their dexterity he who is frequently successful gains much applause and popularity but the clumsy thief who is detected in some bungling attempt is scoffed at and despised and sometimes severely punished such are a few leading characteristics of the natives in the neighborhood of astoria they appear to us inferior in many respects to the tribes east of the mountains the bold rovers of the prairies and to partake much of the eskimo character 
elevated in some degree by a more genial climate and more varied living style. The habits of traffic engendered at the cataracts of the Columbia have had their influence along the coast. The Chinooks and other Indians at the mouth of the river soon proved themselves keen traders, and in their early dealings with the Astorians never hesitated to ask three times what they considered the real value of an article. They were inquisitive also in the extreme, and impertinently intrusive, and were prone to indulge in scoffing and ridicule at the expense of the strangers. In one thing, however, they showed superior judgment and self-command to most of their race. This was in their abstinence from ardent spirits, and the abhorrence and disgust with which they regarded a drunkard. On one occasion a son of Comcomly had been induced to drink freely at the factory and went home in a state of intoxication, playing all kinds of mad pranks, until he sank into a stupor, in which he remained for two days. The old chieftain repaired to his friend MacDougall with indignation flaming in his countenance, and bitterly reproached him for having permitted his son to degrade himself into a beast, and to render himself an object of scorn and laughter to his slave. End of chapter 40